0: Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. The 19th century Irish poet and playwright Oscar Wilde wrote one novel. It's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. The story depicts a young handsome man named Dorian Gray who begins the novel by posing as the muse for a portrait painted by an artist named Basil. Basil gifts Dorian his portrait, to which Dorian proudly hangs in his home. Meanwhile, Dorian is befriended by a self-indulgent aristocrat named Harry, who encourages him to engage in a hedonistic lifestyle. Dorian dives deeper and deeper into debauchery, licentiousness, and virtually every pleasure and sin. Each night that Dorian returns home, he notices that a new blemish has appeared on his portrait. However, Dorian Gray maintains his perfect complexion. As his hedonistic lifestyle gets darker, his portrait becomes increasingly marred, though Dorian himself shows no sign of aging. Later in the novel, the artist Basil confronts Dorian about the rumors of his extreme sensuality. Dorian takes Basil to see the portrait, which has become so hideous and scarred that Basil is only able to identify it by his own signature. Basil, horrified by the painting, begs Dorian to pray for salvation. Dorian becomes overcome by anger and stabs and kills the artist Basil. By the end of the novel, Dorian's picture has become abhorrent, bearing the evidence of all of his crimes. Wishing to destroy that evidence, Dorian takes the knife he used to stab Basil and thrusts it through the painting. There's a loud scream, and when the servants and the police open the locked door, they discover an old man stabbed in the heart, decrepit, withered, and dead. They are only able to identify the man as Dorian Gray because of his rings. Next to him stood the portrait painted by Basil, once again beautiful as when it was first painted. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. For our regular episodes, we've been focusing on the Catholic doctrine and understanding of salvation, which began with episode 43. Today, we're going to conclude the mini-series on salvation by looking at the relationship between the body and the soul, or the physical and the spiritual. I want to return for a second to Oscar Wilde's classic novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. It is widely believed this book served as a self-reflection of its author. Oscar Wilde was a hedonist, engaging in all sorts of pleasures and risky behavior. While he loved the pageantry of Catholicism, he couldn't seem to want to be Catholic enough to set aside his own self-indulgence. The picture of Dorian Gray gives us a little insight into how Oscar Wilde saw the connection between his physical and spiritual nature. While his sensuality seemed fun and whimsical, it increasingly led him to darker and darker places, engaging in all sorts of indecent behavior including paying to have sex with minors. The once whimsical and aristocratic playwright and playboy was eventually locked behind bars and then sent to exile where he wandered the streets squandering his last pennies on alcohol. At the end of his life, dying from syphilis and meningitis, Oscar Wilde begged for a priest who baptized him and gave him last rites. Oscar Wilde died in the year 1900, just 46 years of age. What Oscar Wilde understood and what he portrayed in his lone novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, is that the physical and spiritual are interconnected. Now, That may seem obvious to some, but in reality, the connection between the body and the soul is a tenet that sets Christianity apart from many philosophies and religions. If I could sum up the Catholic position on the body and soul in five points, it would be this. First, God created the physical body. Secondly, the plan of redemption includes both the redemption of the soul and the physical body. Thirdly, in death, our soul is separated from our body. Fourth, in the end, all physical bodies will be resurrected. Fifth, those destined for heaven will receive an incorruptible flesh. Let me restate those five points again. God created the physical body. Redemption includes both the soul and the body. When we die, our soul is separated from our body. In the end all physical bodies will experience a resurrection, and those who go to heaven will receive an incorruptible flesh. Let's break these five points down. First, God created the physical body. Genesis 1.27 tells us, quote, God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, end quote. Now that may seem obvious to some, but for others, this was something that really separated Christianity apart. For example, in the first and second centuries, there was a prevalent philosophy that permeated the Roman world. It was called Gnosticism. In reality, Gnosticism is a broad term with lots of different facets, but Gnostics believed in a disconnect between the body and soul. The physical world, in their understanding, was fallen, corrupt, and therefore evil. God couldn't have created the material world, including our physical bodies, because God was perfect. Gnosticism infiltrated the Christian church and led to all sorts of heresies. For example, Docetism, which promulgated the idea that Jesus only seemed human. He didn't really have a physical body. This is what makes St. John's writing so revolutionary for the time. For example, in John 1.14, St. John emphatically declares that quote, "...the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us." End quote. In other words, not only did God create mankind, but God himself became flesh and blood. He follows this up in John 6 with the Bread of Life discourse, where he records Jesus as saying, quote, "...for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him." Quote. In 1 John 4, 2-3, through St. John states, quote, "...by this you know the Spirit of God." Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This brings us to the second point. God's plan for redemption includes the body and the soul. As we see in the example of Oscar Wilde in the picture of Dorian Gray, what we do with the body affects the soul and vice versa. Furthermore, we cannot have redemption of the soul without also experiencing redemption of the body. Again, if this seems obvious, it actually makes Christianity stand out as a countercultural way of thinking. Going back to Gnosticism, the Gnostics believe that salvation was attained through a secret knowledge, a freeing of one's soul from their body. We can even see this in our own society today. For example, the whole transgenderism movement is this normalization of disconnecting one's identity from their physical body. Just like in Gnosticism, it's based on this enlightenment where the individual rises above their physical characteristics and traits, a disassociation from physical reality. But Christianity preaches that the body cannot be disassociated from the soul because the body is essential for salvation. In his work on the resurrection of the flesh, the 2nd century church father Tertullian wrote, The flesh is the hinge of salvation. No soul can ever obtain salvation unless while it is in the flesh it has become a believer. To such a degree is the flesh the hinge of salvation, that since by it the soul becomes linked with God, it is the flesh which makes possible the soul's election by God." The world criticizes the Christian stance against this modern hyper-transgenderism as being cruel, when in reality, the Christian position is the most loving and charitable position. There are people that have terrible feelings about their bodies, their size, their flaws, their gender. But Christianity maintains that God not only created the body, but he invites the body into his plan of redemption. And St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that our bodies actually become the temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies, with all its shortcomings and blemishes, become the dwelling place of God. God doesn't just indwell in our souls, but also in our physical bodies. Catholics are particularly aware of this because our most intimate connection with Jesus occurs in the celebration of communion. We physically eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. It is not a separation of the spiritual from the physical, but an invitation of the spiritual through the physical. Third, when we die, our soul is separated from our body. St. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. On the cross, Jesus told the thief next to him that he would be with him that day in paradise. In other words, when we die, our soul doesn't go to sleep with our bodies waiting until the resurrection. Our soul separates from our bodies and enters the afterlife. Neither do we experience some sort of reincarnation, as Hebrews 9.27 notes, it is appointed for man to die once. Fourth, we believe in the resurrection of the body. This belief was particularly revolutionary in the first few hundred years of Christianity. For example, the Sadducees, a group of Jewish leaders, rejected the notion of the resurrection. Many Greek philosophers proposed that since the body was a cage for the soul, the soul would one day be resurrected without the confines of the body. This was a prevalent belief in Gnosticism as well. St. Paul, in particular, combats this heresy throughout the New Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, where, among other things, St. Paul states, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The Apostles' Creed and later the Nicene Creed also addresses this by emphatically stating that Christians believe in the resurrection of the body. In his work, City of God, St. Augustine writes, "...thus the souls of departed saints are not affected by the death which dismisses them from their bodies because their flesh rests in hope, no matter what indignifies it, receives after sensation is gone. For they do not desire that their bodies be forgotten, as Plato thinks fit." But rather because they remember what has been promised by Him who deceives no man, and who gave them security for the safe keeping even of the hairs of their head, they with a longing patience wait in hope of the resurrection of their bodies, in which they have suffered many hardships, and are now to suffer never again. Quote. This brings us to our fifth and final point: for those in heaven. Not only will the body experience a resurrection and be rejoined with the soul, but the body will become incorruptible. Whereas Plato and other philosophers saw heaven as this liberation of the soul from the body, Christianity attests that the soul and the body will experience heaven, though in a perfected state. Jesus is the perfect model for what we believe about the connection between the body and the soul, and the resurrection. Jesus took on the body of a human. His plan for redemption included his physical body. When he died, his soul was separated from his body. His body lay in the tomb, but the Bible tells us that he preached to the souls in prison. In the Apostles' Creed, we say that he descended into hell. Then Jesus experienced a resurrection which included both his soul and his physical body. To prove that he was physically alive, he ate in front of his disciples and showed his wounds to them. But we also see that Jesus had a glorified body. He was able to appear in one place and then disappear and appear in another. This means that the more we enter into salvation, the more alive we become. In our next series, we are going to focus on the kingdom of God, the church, and the communion of saints. One of the criticisms that Protestants make of Catholics is that we quote-unquote pray to dead people. That's a terribly uninformed and unbiblical concept of what it means to be a saint. The Bible is clear, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In other words, in heaven, we become more alive, not less. Therefore, death is not not the end of our life at all, but rather the necessary process by which we enter heaven and become more alive. And in heaven, not only will our souls be more alive, but eventually, so will our bodies. Speaking of incorruptible bodies, the Catholic Church acknowledges a miracle known as incorruptible bodies. There have been a number of cases where holy men and women haven't experienced bodily decay after their death. One of the most recent cases involved a nun named Sister Mary Wilhelmina Lancaster, foundress of the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of the Apostles. When she died four years ago, she was put in a simple wooden casket without a vault and without being embalmed. Her fellow sisters wanted to honor her by having her burial site within a newly built chapel, and so they exhumed her. And when they opened the casket, they discovered that her body was incorruptible. For the past week at the time of this recording, thousands have made a pilgrimage to Gower, Missouri to view Sister Wilhelmina's apparent miracle. Sister Mary Wilhelmina Lancaster is believed to be the first known African-American who has experienced an incorruptible body, and she joins a list of about a hundred other known cases of incorruptible bodies. I've included links in the show notes to other examples. What's the big deal about an incorruptible body? Well, there's a messianic prophecy in Psalm 1610 that says, quote, For you will not abandon my soul to the realm of the dead. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay, end quote. Even though Jesus was in the tomb for three days, this prophecy indicates that God preserved Jesus' body from experiencing any early stages of decay. In the same way, he has preserved the bodies of these faithful Christians from experiencing decay as well. This miracle of nothing else demonstrates that God values not just our souls, but our bodies. He created us in his image, and he fully intends to raise our souls and our bodies to new life. Let me end with this. The Catholic perspective is that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made in the image of God. Your soul isn't just called to worship God, but so is your body. This is why Catholics participate in physical disciplines like fasting, kneeling, processing, confessing with our mouths, utilizing rosaries while we pray, partaking of the Eucharist. Communion with God isn't just a spiritual exercise, it is a physical one as well. Whereas Dorian Gray defiled his soul when he defiled his body, we edify our souls when we glorify God with our bodies. And as we lean further into the process of salvation, we not only prepare our soul for eternity, but our bodies as well. Death for the Christian does not mean the end of life. It means we will become more alive. This is the hope of salvation and the promise of the resurrection. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at Podcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.